Well, good morning. My name is Bob Reed. No, no, hey, listen, there, there are folks, it's been, you know, it's almost, oh, I'm in my seventh year being away from here, and so uh, there's folks here that are new, so I'm just Bob. That's, when I call into the office, Edie will tell you, it's just Bob, and that's been sort of uh, consistent. Well, it's good to be back with you, and it's a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you, and we're looking at a passage of Scripture today in the book of Philippians, and I thought it was interesting as I was reading over Philippians over and over again, I came to chapter 1, verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all remembrances of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now, that was written hundreds of years ago by the Apostle Paul for church, but it would be expressing my heart as well. That's the way I I think of you. I pray for you. I pray for you regularly, and uh, the Lord is always good. So it's good to be back with you. It's always good to see some familiar faces. Um, Doris used to kid me. She's sort of used to it now, but she said, what are we today? I said, we're Baptist. I said, the next week, what are we today? We're Presbyterian. It was sort of that kind of thing. So uh, now it's nice to be back into a place where I, at least some of the faces are familiar. And some of you, you know, you've aged. Uh, I haven't, but, you know, <laughs> anyway, I'll try not to... I already said to my wife to be praying for me that I don't say things that I shouldn't be saying today. So, well, I lost that one. Well, let's, uh, let's pray and get into the Word of God. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence in you because you are the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that that, Lord, you humbled yourself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And today we want to be thinking about this as we look at kingdom mindset. What does it take for us to be involved in kingdom ministry? It, it means we need to think like the king. And the king doesn't let us wonder what that, that thinking is like. He tells us what that mindset should be. And, he, and Lord, we look at this today, and we ask ourselves individually, not looking at other people, not evaluating other people, but evaluating ourselves in light of the Word of God. Lord, what kind of mind do we have? What kind of mind are we manifesting in the world in which you've placed us? So may the Spirit of God be our teacher. May he lead us into truth. And truly, as we just sang, it's our desire, all of our desires here, that we would see only Jesus and that we would understand what he's saying to us and then we respond to him with obedient hearts. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I would say to you, we're involved in a spiritual war, you would say, that's not news to me. We know that. The problem is, a lot of us, when we're thinking about a spiritual war, we have it in our mind what that is. Oh, it's... It's, you know, what's going on over in Israel. It's what's going over, you know, in the White House. It's in, in, we have the spiritual war everywhere. And let me tell you where the spiritual war is taking place. It's between your ears. It really is. It's, it's your mind. You know, one of the things that I think we sometimes forget, it's when, when we saw the temptation that, that occurred, the first temptation that was there in the Garden of Eden, remember what it really was? It was really an attack against the mind of how Adam and Eve would think. 
God told them how to think. And he told them what to do. And yet Satan comes along between the ears, attacks the minds, and says, ah, you don't need to do that. You know, do this and you'll be like God. So it is that mindset. The Apostle Paul was very much aware of that. But a lot of us are. I think of uh, this individual, Rick Warren. Some of you have read his books and you've heard of him. Rick Warren tells us a very important thing. He says, a violent battle is raging around us 24 hours per day. It is the battle for your mind. And that battle is vicious. And the reason why it is so intense is that your greatest asset is your mind. I know whatever gets your mind gets you. That's quite a statement. It's a battle for your mind. And by the way, there are many things that are lobbying those those issues into your mind. It comes from media. We always pick on media. But it doesn't always come from media. I think it comes from culture. In many respects, the thing that I've been observing as I've been going into church after church after church is how the church has absorbed the world rather than the church making an impact in the world. And so we're absorbing how the world thinks. And so as the world thinks, unfortunately, I'm starting to see that that's how the church is beginning to think. And that's a dangerous thought. The Apostle Paul, as I said, he, he many times had emphasis and, and, stru- and focused in upon the mind. Um, particularly, I think of the book of Romans. There's two places. Remember, the most familiar verse probably that you know of Romans is, is chapter 12, verse 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, your mind is processing. And as it is processing, what you are doing is it is getting you to think differently about the world in which you live. And as you think, it's transforming the way you live. So it's a combination. In many respects, I often say to people, as you think, you will do. Those things are connected. The Apostle Paul in another place uh, put it this way in Romans, he said a little early in Romans chapter 8, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. Simply put it this way, Many times, we set our mind on the wrong thing. We allow our minds to be set by the flesh rather than to let our minds be set by the Spirit. And those who are believers in Jesus Christ, you have the capacity to set your mind by things of the Spirit. Because as we hear from Paul in another place in Corinthians, he says, the spiritual man is able to discern the things of the Spirit. And so we're to think in terms of what the Spirit would have us think, not think in terms of how the world would have us think. The world is uh, really trying to squeeze us into its mold. And it's doing it by impacting our minds. And Satan loves to do it. And he's coming into churches all over the world, particularly the United States, getting us to think like the world thinks. I, uh, I sort of smile because as I'm going into churches, I look at the 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 you know, the bulletin, if they have them. A lot of churches I go into, they don't do that anymore because that's, that's passe. Everything's passe, you know. That's kind of funny. Anything old is passe. Anything new is true. And that's the way a lot of uh, churches are operating. 
And that's the way a lot of Christians are operating. But I, I want to tell you this. This is what I'm convinced of. We need to get our, our mind geared up to think like Jesus wants you to think, not like the world wants you to think. I really don't care what the world wants me to think. I care a lot about what Jesus wants me to think. You know, and, and, you know, the churches today are mainly thinking like the world. I mean, do we have pastors anymore? No, we have the chief leader. I'm thinking, oh, really? And, and what verse is that? Uh, or we have, uh, we have CEOs in churches, you know, chief operating officers, rather than people that are, sh- are shepherding sheep. You know, it is interesting. Even the terms we use reflect how the world has gotten into, into our churches. We're starting to think like the world. And I tell you this morning, and if you remember nothing else that I say, remember this. I don't care what the world thinks. I want you to think like Jesus thinks. That's what's most important. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at a portion of Scripture, and you have some sermon notes in there, and the sermon notes are designed not only for you to tell when I'm done, but also (laughs) at the bottom it's to give you some time to reflect and to think because I want you to think about what you're hearing this morning because I believe what we're saying this morning is important not because I'm saying it. I'm saying it's important because this is the Word of God, and that's why it's important. So let's look at this. We're going to be looking at this, uh, this premise today, and it's this. As a Christian manifests conduct worthy of gospel, they will reflect humility as demonstrated in Christ. Key word, humility. One of the, one of the things I'm, I'm seeing is if our minds are out of sorts, we're not thinking as Christ thinks, one of the ways that will show up first is we will be selfish, wanting what we want, and not willing to humble ourselves and what what Christ wants for us and for the church. So keep this thought in mind. A Christian, we need to have a conduct that is worthy of the gospel. That's what it says there in Philippians, and that's what we're going to look at. Let's think about this place. Uh, Philippians is an interesting place. It uh, has an interesting history. It's a wealthy place. It had gold mines. And by the way, Nothing new under the sun. Because it had gold mines, there was a lot of fighting over that territory. And so the Romans had a lot of battles over there. They won that area, and they set up uh, an empire there. As a matter of fact, they're 800 miles away from Rome, but what they did is they gave the people 800 miles away there at Philippi the rights of the Roman citizens. As a matter of fact, they, they used the expression that they were the soil of Rome. 800 miles away. Now, you say, well, that's, that's like a plane trip. Yeah, but not back in those days. That was a distance. And yet, they were regarded as citizens just as much as if they were standing in the Roman area, in the city of Rome. That was a key thing. And they were proud of their citizenship. They were proud to be citizens of Rome. And they dressed like Romans, they talked like Romans, they thought like Romans, and yet they're 800 miles away from Rome. Interesting. It reminds me, by the way, that you and I are aliens. We are citizens of heaven, and we're a great distance away, but we're still citizens of heaven. And we have all the rights of heaven just as much as if we were there. Many people are not aware of that fact. Now, you say, well, now where are you getting that, Bob? 
I'm getting that from Ephesians chapter 1. We have been blessed with all of the riches in Christ Jesus. Period. All of them. Every single one of them. And so here we come to this, this idea of, of the church being given this privilege. And, and I begin to get the idea that Paul is understanding that they thought this. And he's writing to them. And he says, you know, you need to think and live not only like citizens of Rome which is a privilege. I mean, they, they were so privileged, they didn't have to pay taxes. I wonder if I could be back in that time and be citizens of Rome on April the 15th. Anyway, but, but you understand, they, they were so much aware of this that Paul is saying, you know what, but you have citizenship in heaven. You think it's a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. He says, what's a bigger deal is that you're a citizen of heaven. That's more important. Well, as we look at our scripture text, we, we see uh, several observations because we're going to be looking there in chapter 1 of, um, of this passage and we're going to look at, at verse 27 because there we see um, the first observation. The king's desire. If we want to have a kingdom mindset, we need to understand the king's desire. And what does the king want for us? In verse 27 it says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So here we see he's saying the king's desire is to live in a worthy manner. And, and the conduct of this worthy manner is, is seen there in this idea where to reflect a new citizenship. Notice how he says in verse 27, he says, in the King James it says only, the NIV says whatever happens, I'm happy to read from the, the, the new, um, new American Standard, I think, yeah, New American Standard, and it says there, only conduct yourselves. And the word only, in other words, it carries this idea, it's emphatic, it means carrying the idea above all, at all costs. It says, put everything else aside, he says, the most important thing, is that you conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. Quite an emphasis. Quite a, quite a thing. And he says, and by the way, it's a reasonable goal. And, and he uses a word here which would be very significant to the Philippian believers because he uses the word conduct. And by the way, he says conduct yourself, which is imperative. And he, he uses a Greek word which means where we get our word politics. He says, because your politics isn't of the world. Your politics is because you're a citizen of heaven. That's your politic. You know, I go to churches and I hear, I hear stuff. You know, I, what I like to do is I like to, to walk around, because most of the places have coffee. I, I got here early, so I didn't get any coffee. So if I forget what I'm doing, that's okay. Not only that, I'm an old man. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You listen to what people are talking about. Well, I, th I think the Republican agenda, I think the Democrat agenda, blah, 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 blah. Or they say, well, what do you think about this issue? What do you think about that issue? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And, uh, and then, then they try to pull me into it because they know I'm the guest speaker and maybe they're having some issues. Well, what do you think about this translation of the Bible? And I said, I think the main issue is the gospel. I think the main issue is Jesus Christ. I don't think there are other issues. I think they're all subservient to this issue. 
Some of them have uh, are in transition, like you're in transition now. And they're saying, well, I think we need a pastor like this, blah, 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 blah. And they go on and on and on. Or I, I, I can't believe what we did here and did that. And, uh, and I tell them, I, you know what I think? I think the most important thing is the gospel. I think the most important person is Jesus Christ. That is the issue. And whenever you get off issue, you get off message. You do. Because there's only really one issue. And it's the gospel. And this is why he says, conduct yourself worthy of the gospel as a new citizen. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have a new king. You know? And, and I'm subservient to a new king. What he does and what he wants is more important than what anybody else wants or what they think. That's the most important issue. And I, and I think also, he says there, uh, that they need to contend together for the faith of the gospel. And, and in other words, represent a united message. And he says, the objective goal is to be worthy of the gospel. And the word worthy is an interesting word. The Greek word is, means suitable or in, in a manner worthy of. Conduct yourself as heaven's citizens in harmony with the responsibilities and blessings of the transformative gospel. The gospel changes lives. You know, there are pastors who think they change lives. Get a life, guys. You don't change lives. You know who changes lives? Jesus Christ. He changes lives. There are people who think, oh, well, we need to have this person because this person can, can do these things. No, the most important thing you need is you have a person who's under the control of the Spirit of God who is preaching the Word of God, who's telling you about Jesus Christ, who's declaring to you the good news of the Gospel. That's what you news because that's what transforms. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he says, that's the objective, worthy of the Gospel. I think it's interesting, it says in John chapter 17, verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, what do people need to see in us? They need to see Jesus Christ being manifested in their midst. They don't need to see our issues. They don't need to see what we think is important. They don't need to understand our trivial issues, which they think... What is this about? They need to hear good news that they can be transformed from death unto life because Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, was buried, was raised, and gives us new life. That's what the world needs to hear. They don't need to hear our issues. Yet, isn't it interesting? As I look at the evangelical community, they're all talking about issues. And I say, how about talking about what's most important? How about talking about the gospel? How about talking about Jesus Christ? Because that's what changes lives. It's unlikely that we'll ever change our government. Now, I really got some of you mad. You know, get a life again. You know, as I read the Bible, and I'm foolish enough to believe it, it says... In the last days, evil men will wax worse and worse. Oh, really? You mean we're not going to be able to have a utopia on earth? No, 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 no. I've already been promised a utopia in heaven. As a matter of fact, I'm already a citizen. I'm headed there. And by the way, I'm closer than a lot of you. That's all right. But that's why that's my focus. 
because I want to give people something that will change their lives for eternity, not for moments. Why live for moments when you can live for eternity? But I I see something else. Not only is an objective goal be worthy of the gospel, but it's an observable goal. Notice what he says in verse 20. He He says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear. Here's what he's saying. He says, this is what I want to see. I want to see that it is reported of you, whether I see it or hear it, what does he want to see? Two things. He says, I want to see that you are standing fast in unity, in one spirit, one mind. The Greek word is steko, which means to stand firm or persevere or to persist, keeping one stand. You notice the, the united aspect. It says one spirit. That's the word pneuma. And then he says one mind. That's the word suki, which, is the, which also could be translated one soul. It's the seat of the feelings. He says, I want you to, to be in a place where you're controlled by the Spirit, and as you are controlled by the Spirit, one Spirit, then you are one soul. Your desires, your affections, your, your things that are important to you, they're united because you're under the Spirit's control. And then he says, not only stand fast, but then he says, striving together in service of what? Of sharing the faith. He says, look, I want you all pulling the same way. Uh, It's interesting that the Greek word is a word that actually comes out of something with uh, athletics. It's to strive at the same time with other. In in an Olympic uh, competition or an athletic competition, to pull in the same direction, the same goal. You know, I, I find that uh, teams that do best, like the Eagles, it's because they're all on the same page. You know, they weren't the best. I mean, they even said that. But they're all pulling in the right direction. They didn't have the best quarterback. I mean, he was injured. But they're all striving together in the same direction. You know what happens when a team doesn't strive in the same direction? They don't win. Actually, there's a lot of contention. You get, a, you get a hot shot. Hey, I can do this. I can, like in, right now in basketball, I can two-hand dunk. Not me, but, you know, I can two-hand dunk. Well, that's fine, but you had another guy that was open who, was, who would have been, done a better job. You could have passed it off. But you see teams, and I can feel teams, when, when you see these guys, they're playing as a unit. They're playing there with one spirit, one mind. They're going in the right direction. And this is what he's saying. He says, this is what we need. Stand fast, strive together. He says, because you want to reflect the gospel. You want to reflect Jesus Christ. You see, that the king's desire is that we would be citizens of the kingdom and then live lives that reflect a new citizenship representing a united message. I, I love this uh, little ditty that I heard one time. It says, you're writing a gospel chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? If people listen to what you talk about, what do they think about what you're talking about? What do they learn? Think about that. You know, when, you, when you're together here as a body, what are you talking about? What do you... Now, now I, I'm going to stop preaching and start meddling. What do you whine about out in the foyer? In the men's room, ladies' room? What are we whining about? 
what is our focus? What is, the, what is the gospel according to you? What are we writing that people are reading? Let me tell you. You know, I, I, I get into a lot of churches and they say, oh, you're from Calvary Monument. And then they go out and they start giving me stories about what's happening here at Calvary Monument. I don't really care. As a matter of fact, they ask me the question. They say, what do you think? I said, I think that Jesus Christ is there and I think the gospel is being proclaimed and that's what's most important. End of discussion. I don't say end of discussion because I try to be polite, which is it's a little stretch for me, but that's, that's the way it is. You see, this is what we need, to, we need to be focused upon, and that's why two questions I leave in this, we leave this point is, what do you reflect that your citizenship is in heaven? How do you reflect it? Do people see that on a daily basis as you walk and move in your community? Secondly, is it seen in the way you live your life? How do people see Christ in you as you're living on a daily basis? But there's the second thing I want you to observe in this passage, and we move along, is the king, not only the king's desire, but the king's demand. And you see it there very, very clearly. The basis for the demand is seen there in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice there are a lot of ifs there, and that's confusing. But in the Greek language, it's actually a clause that's when it starts with if like this, is a first-class condition, mean a certainty. You could translate it, and I usually do, since, or in view of the fact, or because. So let me, you know, let me change this and put it into the since idea. Since, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion. You'll notice that those are the, the four bases uh, of this demand. He says, I want to tell you, he's, he says, as I'm telling you to walk worthy of the gospel, to have a different mindset, he says, you need to understand this, that here's the idea. You need to be like-minded. And he says, and this requires that you understand this. This can happen since these are realities. You have a consolation from Christ. That means, the, the Greek word's interesting. It means uh, called to the side to aid. It denotes an appeal. Actually, it's an encouragement at this particular point. And the believers are encouraged by Christ to care for other believers. He says, since you care for other believers. <laughs> I'm thinking, Really? Do we care for other believers? But he says, since you do care for other believers, in other words, he says, this is what I'm assuming because you want to work worthy of the gospel. If you're working, walking worthy of the gospel, this has to be the reality. Then since you care for other believers. And by the way, it's an exhortation. And, and he gives this exhortation. And how do I know that Jesus gave that exhortation? How about John 17? Remember John 17, verse Uh, 20 and 23, Jesus is saying there, and he's praying this prayer, and he says, Father, may they be one as we are one in unity. We're one like the Father and Son are one. Wow! That's quite a unity. That's an indivisible unity. He says, that's what I'm praying for. So he says, since we have this, this encouragement, there's a good word, exhortation, this entreaty from Christ. But then he goes on and says, since you have comfort from his love. And here the, the word is, is a word that is kind of interesting. It's very similar to the word we just saw before, but here it's the idea of Jesus coming up and whispering in an ear. He says, and he whispers to us. 
it, because it comes from a, a word that means near speech. He says, since we have this near speech from Jesus, and it's ki- carrying this idea that love gives tender counsel. In other words, God loves us, and he's counseling us, and he's saying to us, what? John 13, verses 34 to 35. Love one another as I have loved you. There's the counsel. He says, so I'm going to exhort you. But he says, I'm going to counsel you. He says, since you have love. And then he goes, since you have communion, because the Spirit is in you. In other words, we don't have the Spirit of the world. We have the Spirit of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. That is our unity. And he says, since we have that, the Spirit indwells us. You see how he's coming along here? He says, Christ exhorts you. Christ's love constrains you. The Spirit indwells you. In other words, the person that's sitting beside you that has a difference of opinion, that sees things differently than you, let you understand this. They have the same Holy Spirit in you as they do, and, and, and that's important. And then he goes on and says, another basis of this demand is this. Since you have the concern and compassion from His work in your life, in other words, the, spirit of, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit works in you. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit should be what is being manifested toward other people. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, meekness, self-control. Those are the ways that we respond to other people. And that's why he can call out for this idea of being like-minded. He says, here's the basis. He says, because the Spirit enables you, the Spirit indwells you, Christ's love constrains you, and Christ exhorts you. He says, therefore, in light of this fact, then he moves on and it says, there's some ingredients to this demand. He goes on in verse 2 and he says this, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know, verse 2 is telling us what he wanted. He, and summarizing it in one word, it's unity. He says there, one affection, same love, one accord, being of one accord or united in spirit, one soul, similarity in desires or passions, and one aim, one mind, intent on one purpose. And whatever you do in word or deed, Paul writes in another place in Colossians 3.17, do it all to the glory of God. Walk worthy of the gospel, he starts off. That's the demand. But then he goes on and he's saying here, he says, but that requires that we are united with one affection, one accord, and one aim. And then from this, he moves on and it says, And there's the outcome of the demand. What happens when this occurs? Verses 3 and 4. He says, well then, if this is occurring, if you're understanding the basis of our like-mindedness, and if you understand this demand, what is being demanded of us, then the result of this, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Two things he's talking about there. He says, First of all, there needs to be humility. He says, notice he starts with a negative there. He's, he's improper motivation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And, and this idea of selfish ambition is speaking of pride that, as MacArthur says, causes people to push for their own way. And, it, and, and it's interesting. It's sometimes, this very Greek word that's used there, sometimes it's translated strife. You know Why? Not because that's the way it'd be translated, but what it, it really is because that's the outcome of this attribute. In other words, if you are having selfish ambition, the natural outcome of this is strife. 
If you want what you want, and that's more important than what Christ wants, then there's going to be some problems. And then the other improper motivation is conceit. Literally, it's empty glory. It's, it, it refers to the root of the selfish ambition. In other words, the person thinks, hey, I know the truth. You dummies don't. You know, that's why the conceit comes. And when you have that kind of attitude, that's what produces the selfish ambition. And so he says, the outcome of the demand is humility. The outcome of the command is ministry to others. I, I see it in there in, in verse 4. It says, be focused upon others. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. In other words, if I think this, and then I do this, how is it impacting others? How is it impacting the proclamation of the gospel? How much is it impacting the promotion of Jesus Christ? And so he goes on and he says, we need to be other-focused. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way. He says, self-forgetfulness is what Paul's advocating, not self-hate. As Christians, we pursue the goal of exalting Christ and putting others before ourselves. We tend to forget all the self-serving petty differences that normally separate us. You see, if we're going to be like Christ, then we need to focus on the right things. If one person put it this way, if we focus upon our differences, our focus is upon ourselves. If we focus upon our unity, our focus is upon God. So two questions. Is there a focus upon our desires or, and others and Christ? Or is there this weed of bitterness and envy growing in our hearts? The last thing is the most important thing. You see, Paul is not saying, hey, I, I, I have this, the king's given a demand and the king has expressed a desire. But I want to tell you, the king has demonstrated what he wants. And he demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he goes right into talking about Jesus. Because after all, he says, that's what you want to live your life worthy of. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, his, his work and his ministry, and what he did for you. He says, if that's your focus, he says, then let's live like him. He's shown us how to live. And he talks about it. There's an attitude to adopt. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The exhortation, imperative, this think you. That's what it is very literally. And the exhortation is there, what was in Christ. And then he moves on after that attitude. He says, here are the actions. Look what he did. I mean, he was aware of who he was. It says there in verse 6. I mean, he knew he was the Son of God. He knew that he was the King of Kings. He knew this. And he acknowledged that he did not have to hold on to who he was. As it says further there, he not only uh, existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That's a great translation. So what was his attitude? An attitude generated some actions. You see it in verse 8 and 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto the point of death, even the death of the cross. Do you see what he says? The attitude that Christ had, that he didn't have to hold on to this, he didn't have to say, well, this is who I am. This is my position. I'm going to hold on to this at all costs, and I don't care if it hurts you. 
But he goes on and says, he emptied himself. He adapted himself, took on the form of a slave in the likeness of men. He appeared as a man, verse 8. He humbled himself, verse 8. He took on earthly experiences. And then most especially, he offered himself as a sacrifice. It says there in Galatians 3.13, he became a curse. That's how much he was willing to humble himself. He was willing to be from the highest to the lowest because that's what it meant for our salvation. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is that of humility. That's what Jesus did for us. And then you know the approval of the Father. I love this. You know why? He didn't need to get approval from people. He says, you know, my Father's going to approve this. He didn't need the acclaim of people around him. They cursed him. You see, what he didn't focus upon that because he, he was given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. You know, if you're trying to be involved in things to promote your position or promote your person or promote your power, you're not thinking like Jesus because he humbled himself. He didn't focus upon self-promotion. He focused upon Christ's promotion. I want to conclude by this. This man is named Robertson McQuilkin. He was uh, uh, the president of Columbia International University. He, ha- he was speaking all over the world, literally. He was writing books. He was doing all of this. But his wife developed Alzheimer's. And he got up and he, one day in chapel, and he announced that he was going to resign as president of Columbia Bible College because he needed to take care of his wife full time. Now, he could have hired housekeepers and all of that stuff. He could have done all these things. But he went from this place of prestige all over the world, this world speaker. Everybody wanted him, all, this well-known author. And he changed depends. And he fed, spoon-fed a wife. He humbled himself. He didn't grasp onto his position of being the president of Columbia Biblical University. He humbled himself. You see, that, that's, a, that's a picture of what it means to hum, of humility. Not elevating ourselves and saying, well, this is who I am and this is what I think and what I think is more important than what you think. But it's humbling ourselves even to that place. You see, the kingdom's mindset is this. We saw it there. Is humility. If we want to be involved in kingdom ministry, we're only going to be doing that if we have a kingdom mindset. And the kingdom mindset is humility. What kind of mind do we have? What are we promoting? Well, I'd like to uh, conclude by saying uh, a song, and you're going to see it on the screen, because this is really what we need to desire. We need to make sure that our vision for life is Jesus Christ. We want to be able to say, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. That's what we want to focus upon. Not the differences we have with people, but the commonality that we have in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing this together. Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me save that thou 
thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, walking or sleeping, thy presence my life. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, my King of heaven, my treasure thou art, my King of heaven, my victory won, may bright heaven sun heart of my own heart whatever befall still be my vision O ruler of all Father forgive us when we focus upon the wrong things there's only one focus that's worthy of our focus there's only one life that's worthy of the gospel. And that's a life that is fully focused on the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel and what Christ has done for us. Lord, let us not get sidetracked in looking at all the other things that are around us, what the world thinks, what the world wants, what other people want. But Lord, let our focus be upon you. And then when we focus upon you, we can humble ourselves. And then when we humble ourselves, we can serve others as you would have us serve, just like Jesus did. So take us from this place, living lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.